0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lynn. Today, we will be discussing emergency preparedness with Dr. Greta Porteus, MD, anesthesiologist at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, and Associate Program Director of the Anesthesiology Residency. She is also an instructor in emergency preparedness at Homeland Security's Center for Domestic Preparedness in Anniston, Alabama. I would like to, number one, uh, thank Dr. Porteus for spending the time with us and discussing this topic. And second, I thought I would just you know, go ahead and get started. Dr. Porteus, you trained as an anesthesiologist, and I was really curious in terms of how you came to um, have this as one of your areas of interest and expertise. Maybe you could start by telling us about this.
1: Of course, and thank you very much for inviting me to speak on this podcast. Yeah, The fact that I'm an anesthesiologist initially comes as a surprise to the people I have met in emergency management because emergency preparedness in healthcare has really traditionally been the domain of emergency medicine. But there's actually, when we start to delve into it, a lot of issues for which anesthesiologists have a great deal of expertise and can be useful in planning, preparation, and delivery of care during crisis. But I'll let you know what my specific story has been, because uh, I've been doing this for a couple of years now, and I didn't start this process knowing much about the topic at all. For me, this started uh, on a professional level in 2013. Two things happened then. In April of 2013 was the Boston Marathon bombing. And I'm sure those listening remember this tragic event as well. There were some things that were different about this compared to other mass casualty events that I have read about or heard about in the past. This was an event where two homemade bombs detonated near the finish line of the Boston Marathon, and there were hundreds of casualties, several deaths, but hundreds and hundreds of wounded people. And looking at the images and reading the the news stories that followed after that, I was struck by several things, and one was the sheer scale of this disaster. We really hadn't seen anything like this uh, in the country since 9-11, and 9-11 did not tax the medical resources because there were so few survivors after that tragic event. But in Boston, it was different. There were many, many wounded people. And not only that, they were going to hospitals around the area that might not have necessarily been prepared to take care of traumatized patients. And furthermore, I realized, looking, looking at the pictures and reading about it, that I did not, in fact, know how to treat blast injuries. Treating bombing victims had not been part of my medical training. Uh, What did I know about a traumatic amputation after an IED? I mean, really, I had mentally put this in the the category of this is things that military physicians and and frontline trauma surgeons maybe need to know, but not me. I realized that wasn't true anymore. The second thing in 2013 was I read a very powerful book called Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm Ravaged Hospital. And this is by journalist Sherry Fink. The book really details the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina at Memorial Medical Center in New Orleans in August of 2015. And it is, it's the expansion of a, a wonderful article she wrote and published in the New York Times Magazine in 2009. And she did many, she did basically extensive research, interviewed all sorts of people involved with what was happening at this particular hospital and exhaustive documentation. And really what had happened at Memorial in New Orleans was this. Katrina happened, flooding happened, and they didn't have a plan to deal with the patients. They didn't have a plan to deal with what happened when their hospital shut down, lost power, lost communications. Lacking a plan, the staff improvised a rather unconventional way of triaging patients to be evacuated by choosing to evacuate the healthiest patients first and keeping the sickest patients in the hospital. And after evacuation started on the third day, continued on the fourth. And finally, by the fifth day, the situations are so bad, the conditions were so bad in that hospital, that some of the staff who were pushed by exhaustion and desperation made a decision to deliberately overdose critically ill patients with morphine in order to end their lives. And it's estimated that up to 21 patients died this way in this hospital. As I was reading this, and I was trying to imagine myself in the position of these poor doctors and nurses, I had this sinking feeling because I didn't feel horror at what they had done. I felt horror because I felt like this could happen anywhere. I could see how this happened. And that thought was immediately followed by the thought, I can't let this happen here. And that's all very well and good, but I realized soon after, I really didn't know a thing about how to stop it. I didn't know a thing about emergency preparedness and healthcare, And it was a little intimidating to start the process because where do you start when you know nothing? So what I did is I, I started talking to my, my office mate. And he is a, he's a wonderful anesthesiologist and intensivist named Elliot Fagley. And, and Dr. Fagley said, you know, I was there too. I was at another hospital in New Orleans. And so at that time, he was at Tulane Hospital. And he, along with a number of other residents, stayed and they successfully evacuated Tulane Hospital and during the process also managed to get Charity Hospital, uh, which is right nearby, evacuated too. They were just down the road from Memorial Hospital in New Orleans. And there were really only two deaths in their evacuation from Charity Hospital. Oh. It was a stark contrast to Memorial, where I think almost 50 people died in that hospital. And I asked Elliot, I said, what was the difference What allowed you to do that? And he said, it was very simple. We had an evacuation plan that did not involve the federal government. And I had to think about that. And I said, well, that's pretty darn powerful. A, you have a plan, and B, you have a plan to take care of yourself. And so what they had done is set up in advance a plan of sharing with regional hospitals in the area within sort of the healthcare organization to get their helicopters to come and get the patients and their staff out. So it's a striking contrast. In a single, very narrow geographic area of the difference that even a basic plan can make in survival of both patients and staff. So I said, all right, we're going to do this where I am. All right. And I started knocking on doors and asking questions. Um, I found out that my hospital had an emergency preparedness committee and I asked to be on it. They were both surprised and very grateful because physicians really hadn't shown an interest in that previously. I started doing a lot of reading. I started taking courses. And I'll talk a little bit more about these towards the end of the podcast, but a really useful one for the audience is looking at the American College of Surgeons DMEP, that is Disaster Management and Emergency Preparedness courses, which are sort of one-day intensive courses that are held all over the country periodically and uh, really give you a great overview on emergency preparedness from the perspective of healthcare providers. It sort of grew from there and going to other courses in disaster and austere medicine and getting other people at my organization, doctors and nurses, uh, involved. And finally, I went to a class at the Center for Domestic Preparedness, which is a Department of Homeland Security and FEMA-sponsored training center in in Anniston, Alabama. And what's cool about that is for those who really like simulation and hands-on training, it allows you to take a hospital which is entirely devoted to training and practice and run that hospital through a variety of disasters and have people do hands-on care with mannequins and actors and practice the management that's required. What I've learned from this in the last four years is that we as physicians approach this, and I certainly approach this with a very narrow perspective on what emergency planning meant, because I kept thinking about it as you know, the clinical side and how I was going to take care of patients, and I had very little appreciation of the complexity of what was necessary for that kind of care to continue, that you needed all sorts of things beyond the people who are willing to help or able to help, like physicians. I mean, you need supply chain, you need logistics, you need uh, management of media and PR, you need to know how to work with outside government agencies and private agencies, you need to know what to do in managing families. I mean, there's just a whole host of things that are necessary to make this all work. And the Society of Critical Care Medicine has actually done a couple of great podcasts in the last year to talk about some of these key issues. There's um, the podcast 322 where Dr. Chadwick Smith is talking about the mass casualty response after the Orlando shooting. And one of the comments that really stuck with me is he, he mentions how critical it was that humble tasks like cleaning rooms or restocking supplies were to continuing to allow the clinical staff to keep taking care of those patients successfully and saving lives. So it's really not just about what I'm able to do, it's about the support structure that surrounds me and others allow us to be able to continue to deliver care.
0: Well, now that I have heard about the the various pieces of information and training that you personally went through, maybe I could get you to give us some advice about how the rest of us could get ourselves and our institutions uh, more ready for a potential disaster.
1: Absolutely. and. I just want to start by acknowledging that when you first start to think about this problem and you start to, to imagine the scope of it and think about how all moving pieces are in play and in fact how devastating it could be if a really bad event like a terrible earthquake or hurricane comes to your community, it's easy to get overwhelmed, right? And there is a concept called psychic numbness that psychologists talk about in which as humans when we think about an event like this which is so big and so devastating and far off and probably won't happen it sort of allows us to put it aside and just to try we can't even quite a, kind of wrap our heads around it mm-hmm. and so sort of put it off to the side and not tackle head-on and I really firmly think the way to get around this is to simply start small and just start where you are wherever you work is the best place to start because it's where you know and it's the people that you know and pick something small to start with and start asking a few questions and it will just grow from there naturally so you might start by asking a very simple question, which is, what emergency plans currently exist at my facility? Every hospital has to have them. You may not know where they are, but you can find out. And probably the first person you want to talk to, if you don't happen to know this offhand, every hospital should have an emergency program manager. They are in the Office of Safety and Regulatory Compliance. They are the person that allows that hospital to stay compliant with Regulatory guidelines and help with this kind of planning process. So figure out who that person is and ask, Hey, can I see our emergency plan? And actually read it. Now, you may be fortunate enough to work in a big hospital somewhere like uh, the Orlando Medical Center or like Harborview Medical Center here in Seattle, which is our level one trauma center. And it's sort of, it's a big, very well prepared place. They're all over this. They're the regional coordinators for medical care in the community. Um, and they have great plans. Um, but you may not work at a place like that. And so you may open up that binder and start reading the plan and realize this is actually pretty sparse. I mean, if you were reading this for instructions, I'm not you may not quite understand what they're saying. And the instructions may be outdated. They may be talking about buildings that don't exist anymore and people that don't exist anymore. And I think it's really important that you know where you're at so you know how you can start improving things. I think it is also important to point out that this is something that affects all of us. And we we think about these high-profile events in terms of like the Orlando shooting or something really big that involves a big trauma center, and it's very tempting psychologically for a lot of other hospitals to say, hey, you know, trauma really isn't our thing. The big guys will take care of it. We're just going to keep doing our thing in our community. And that is just simply wrong. There are probably around 5,000 hospitals in this country, and only 700 of them have any type of trauma designation. So that's thousands of hospitals, kind of like where I work, which is also not a trauma hospital. And they would be the ones who would first be receiving patients wherever an event might happen. Okay. Because patients aren't going to care that you, you think they're going to go to the trauma center. They're going to go to the place that's closest to them. They're going to go to the place where they get the, their care and where they trust. And it doesn't really matter to them whether you're not, you don't do trauma regularly or you don't do OB or you don't do pediatrics. They can come, they can and will come to you
0: hmm.
1: Everyone could be affected by a mass casualty incident. And this is just by definition, any event in which patient demand exceeds the resources that you have at the time. So although it can be a huge event like Orlando, like an earthquake, if you're a rural hospital with a four bed ED and one doc and one nurse down there, a mass casualty event is a four car pile up on the freeway. Okay. Because it has exceeded your resources. So everyone needs a plan that is in the terminology of emergency management called all hazards. That is a flexible plan that can be scaled up and can be adapted to a variety of situations coming in. And it needs to be used as often as possible, activated for smaller events or activated during drills so that people become familiar with it. Another thing that if you read the, listen to the podcast with Dr. Smith that I referred to, he talks about the hospital incident command system or HICS. And I would bet that very few of the listeners are actually familiar with what this is. I know I certainly wasn't. But what HICS is is a sort of a national standard for hospital management during crisis that's been adapted from what's called the incident command system that is the standard organizational structure and language used by law enforcement, by fire and EMS personnel. When this is activated, when the command center of a hospital is activated, the leadership, the chain of command changes drastically. I think it's very wise for people on the front lines providing patient care to be aware of what would happen in terms of that activation happening, what would be expected of them. Because it is entirely possible your role may be very different than the role that you think you're going to be playing. And we have to be flexible in recognizing who we are going to be taking orders from and the kind of task that we're going to be, I don't know, asked to do. It it just may be very different than what your conception is of what your response is going to be. Mm-hmm. A second question also seems deceptively simple, but it has turned out uh, to, to not be where I work. And when I talk to other people, uh, there's a recognition that, boy, this, we're not quite sure about this either. The question is, how are your staff, how are your colleagues notified during an emergency? You may, again, work at a big trauma center where they have a really robust, thorough mass notification system where if something bad happens, they notify you by SMS, by phone call, by email whatever they sort of over multiple disciplines of communication and they have groups already set up and everyone sort of knows what the plan is. And that is absolutely fantastic. I would wager, however, that this is not the case in most hospitals, particularly not smaller ones or ones where you have contracted medical groups providing care where the notification system is a little bit more, well, it could be based on pagers and very few of us actually carry pagers outside the hospital anymore, or it might be based on a phone tree. I'll tell you, uh, our our department, our anesthesia department, tested our phone tree last year uh, on the urging of myself and a couple of my like-minded colleagues. It had been set up for more than a decade. It had never been tested. So I said, let's give it a try and see what happens. And I'll tell you, there was a very high defect rate. Almost almost 50% of the department didn't get notified. Good that you looked. Yeah, we actually collected data on this. It was a poster at the ASA. But yeah, there, and the reason for the failure uh, was multifold, but one of the interesting things was this. You know, in 2016, if you see an unknown number on your cell phone, most people don't pick up. And that's what the phone tree was based in, because not everyone had each other's cell phone contact information. Mm. So on the basis of that and that data, we switched over to an SMS-based notification system, which is much better. So my point is here that you have to be sort of clear about, well, how are we going to find out about this? and then what are we going to do about if we find out? Are we all going to rush into the hospital? Because that's the natural inclination. Doctors, nurses, other healthcare providers, we're helpers. We want to help. But having all of your staff rush in and work is fine if the event is over in six hours. But what if the event is over in days? Mm. So you're going to need relief. You're going to need rest. So building into your local response system, even your department's response system, should be a system of, Look, some of you come in early and then some of you come in at 12 hours to provide relief and so forth. It's not perfect and it won't be perfect in any kind of emergency, but at least it gives some sort of structure to the response anticipating a really long event. Third part, third question, ask this, are your staff and colleagues prepared at home? Now, I'm sure some are and some aren't, but if you think about it, how am I supposed to provide care to patients if I'm worried about the safety of my family? The answer is I'm not. In fact, I might not even stay if I need to take care of my family. There's nothing that can compel me to stay. So if you acknowledge that reality, you say, okay, I need to get my stuff squared away at home so my family, my loved ones are protected, taken care of as much as possible. That will allow me the greatest flexibility in being able to help others during a crisis. And it's my opinion that this is part of professional medical responsibility because truly we are all responders, Uh, during a disaster.
0: And I think we all need to plan for it. Any questions so far? I I, I love it. I I think these are really good points for all of us to think about. And you are touching on issues that I think most of us don't think about. For example, how do we get contacted by our colleagues at work or by the hospital? And Are we ready at home? Are we going to feel okay about that? And it goes back to what you were saying initially about communication. You know, in the, well, let's call it the Sentinel event, the Memorial Hospital uh, at Mm -hmm. New Orleans, you know, it sounds like a lot of it comes down to communication. And I'm sure you're going to talk about that more.
1: Communication and having multiple ways to communicate is really a core issue anytime you drill down on analysis after the event of really any kind of mass casualty event like this it's never going to be perfect but you have to anticipate failure and i think as an anesthesiologist that's actually how i how i practice medicine that's part of what we do is we anticipate that things are going to go wrong we anticipate things are going to fail what i mean by multiple lines of communication is look we may be used to dealing, may be used to be communicating in the hospital with a, a wi-fi based communication system like vocera or we may be counting on the fact that the cell towers aren't overwhelmed we may be counting on having power Uh, So we're able to use email and computers and all of those things may be absent. So how do we get our, how do we communicate with our staff outside the hospital to tell them what to do? And then even communicating within the hospital becomes incredibly difficult. So, you know, in the drills that I participated in um, both in Alabama and at our hospital, it has become apparent that you have to plan for everything to go down. And at least at one point in your communication is going to be people running with pieces of paper. I mean, you have to plan that it's going to be that bad. You have to plan on tracking patients without the benefits of computers. You have to plan on radios, and that should be in your command center. We have radios, satellite, phone, you name it. So we're going to use everything we can, but we're going to recognize that things get really, really bad in a hurry when it comes to communication. And you and I, and I'm sure everyone else in critical care units knows how easy it is for information to get dropped during handoffs. Yes. Think about that times a thousand think about that when you know some there's been a disaster someone comes rolling into your your ICU you have no information on them not not a thing you have maybe some vital signs scribbled on duct tape on the person's chest that's about it so as much as you can building redundancy into communication both among your departments and staff and also trying to address this issue of how are we going to communicate in the hospital itself and, and planning right down to the, we need runners, we need the Nike network. That's how we're going to get information from one place to the other.
0: Let me ask you this. Do you recommend having action aids uh, around the units to to make this easier, you know, laminated cards for, you know, a plan of action? How how do you make people more aware? Do, do you do freaking drills? Do, do you have a recommended mechanism for this? A-
1: absolutely. I think that standard standard work, uh, standardized roll cards, checklists, all the tools that we are already practicing in the execution of complex tasks now, central line insertion, running a code blue, things like that where people are used to going to resources and working through it can be applied here. Uh, I know Virginia Mason is in the process of developing and has developed some of these tools that we are actively running through drills on. And we'll be sort of presenting and rolling out that have greatly allowed us to focus on the key things and give people direction. Because this is going to be a time of chaos and fear and perhaps even panic. And we need to do what we can to focus individuals to figure out where do I get the information? What are the first three steps I need to do? Here's how I do it. And be very methodical about it. Because winging it is not going to lead to success. It could lead to some very, very bad outcomes. So, yes, the development of standard work processes and cognitive aids, I think, is key. And then education, staff education and practice. There is, um, so that you know and your listeners know, there's going to be a lot more of this wherever you are practicing because of a rule that CMS came out with in 2016. And this affects all medical facilities. And basically what this rule says is, look, if you're getting money from the federal government, Medicare, Medicaid, we need you to be very proactive in planning and not just planning, but in training and doing exercises. And this is a lot more comprehensive than medical facilities have ever seen before. And to some degree, some are scrambling to try to figure out how they're going to be compliant with this rule. It has also also extended not just to hospitals, but to facilities that really weren't included in this planning before, but also are quite important. Long-term care facilities, uh, skilled nursing facilities, dialysis centers, outpatient surgery centers. All of these are now going to have to start really training and practicing a lot more than they've been required to do in the past. So I think you're going to see more of this where you are. And if you're seeing it, you might as well participate in it because it's much better for the people who are there, who know how to do the work, who are familiar with their environment, to actually develop the plans and practice the plans. And we've seen a really dramatic transformation at our institution just over two years as people, first of all, were kind of reluctant to see this shared mental model of, wait a minute, there's something bad that happens and suddenly there's this command center we're supposed to be listening to and suddenly we're going to have to, suddenly have to you know assess all of our rooms and see what what our patients need and how are we going to organize that. There was some resistance and confusion about that, but the more we practiced it, the more automatic it became and then it just sort of became second nature. And that was really, really gratifying to see because it really didn't take that long. And people, it turns out, were really excited to be able to practice something that was that made them feel as though they were more in control because they were. And they, instead of sort of feeling helpless about not knowing what to do in case something bad happened, they actually had plan A, B, C, and D, and they knew how to do it. And so that was really empowering for for the staff. And it was really gratifying to see because you just have to take that and expand it further
0: depending on what the needs are. Yes. And we need people like you to really be able to spread the message and continue to educate the rest of us. So I wanted to ask you about that. What are the various resources that our listeners out there can utilize?
1: So uh, thank you for asking about that. What is great is there are a lot of online resources that would It's very easy to get started just with reading. And I'll point out that the American College of Surgeons has a great emergency and disaster preparedness section of their website where you can start doing some reading there. The American Society of Anesthesiologists has a committee called COTEP, the Committee on Trauma and Emergency Preparedness. They, too, have a big resource list you can start clicking on and reading about. There are a lot of local and regional opportunities for training and learning as well. If you interface with your emergency management program director they will be able to refer you to these resources and they are largely free and sponsored by government agencies because they really really want healthcare provider participation in training and in planning there are a number of free courses that will teach you all you wanted to know and more about the hospital incident command system and the larger picture on of how federal aid happens and how the federal response happens during a natural disaster on uh, the FEMA website so click on there and there's really more than you more than you could ever get to in a lifetime probably and then finally I, I really want to put a plug-in for the Center for domestic preparedness as a federal agency they can't really advertise so they they rely on word of mouth and what the course that your uh, listeners may be interested in is called healthcare leadership for mass casualty incidents and what it is is an intensive five-day course in Alabama that's both didactics and then hands-on tabletop exercises and live exercises and simulations using actors and interfacing with other agencies and actually allowing you to use the tools that you've read about in managing a variety of disasters, it is free to participants. So this is your tax dollars at work. So I, I greatly encourage not just you know, attendings, but you know, medical residents, nurses, hospital administrators, security, building engineers... Really, they want everyone who's engaged in all the parts that comprise a,
0: a working medical center to participate. Well, like you pointed out before, everybody matters, right? Even the people who can turn over a particular bed so that the next patient can uh, be treated, that, that's important. So, yeah, everybody matters.
1: Absolutely. And
0: the response,
1: as they say, the, res- the response to a disaster, it starts locally and it ends locally. You have to start with what you have. And there is not going to be help coming, at least not from, you know, the federal government, not for at least several days. So if you just sit there and don't do anything and sort of wait for things to be delivered, you're going to go down a real dark road. You have to work within the community, resources and networks that you and your hospital have built, and utilize everyone to where they are needed most. And The story I remember from this had to do with the CEO of one of the hospitals affected by, by in Joplin by the tornado and there were several hospitals were just destroyed by a tornado there. The hospital CEOs said, you know, the thing that I am most proud of in what I did during that disaster at my hospital is I got water. He used his truck and drove to get pallets and pallets of bottled water and drove it back to the hospital. And went to get more water and drove it back because that was the thing. The people who were working there nonstop, they needed food, they needed water, they needed a lot of things. But that's how the CEO said, I, that's how I did the most good. Mm-hmm. So our jobs may be very different. I mean, as an anesthesiologist, I'm going to tell you, probably if there's a big earthquake, I'm not going to be doing a lot of anesthesia. I'm probably going to be doing a lot of first aid and probably some critical care, and probably some palliative care, and I have to be sort of flexible on how I see what my role is because it could be
0: just very different. Got it. Well, let, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, the the various tasks. We are speaking to a critical care audience, so I wanted to ask you specifically to this uh, audience of you know intensivists and other allied professionals. How can critical care departments? get themselves ready for these large-scale catastrophes, and are there any special roles that you see critical care personnel uh, playing in these situations of emergencies and catastrophes? I think the critical care-specific pieces
1: of this puzzle, when thinking about this question, I think there are Two major things that I see. The first is for you to recognize, for your audience to recognize that you represent a rare and precious resource. That in a large scale disaster that the skills, uh, knowledge, uh, that you bring to the table are going to be greatly valued and will probably be overstripped by the demand for them. So you're going to have to start thinking about how can we provide critical care not in ICU units, if all of our beds are filled, but there are still patients elsewhere in the hospital who need it, how, how can we organize that? How could we effectively do that? This is getting at a concept called surge capacity. It's difficult because many hospitals, many medical organizations in a rather fragile medical system in the United States are already at surge capacity. We, particularly during something like flu season, we may be over it, but we're thinking about how will we absorb an influx of critically ill patients? Where will we put them physically? Who will take care of them? How can we adjust our staffing ratios or perhaps who is providing care at the front lines to maximize the resource that we we have? I'll give an example. Um, So as I mentioned, as an anesthesiologist, I already know I'm not going to be doing a lot of anesthesia, but I'll tell you that every operating room has an ICU ventilator in it. It's called an anesthesia machine. So you already have, if you have operating rooms that are standing still or standing unoccupied with operations, you have an overflow ICU. So it's the time now to start thinking about that and planning about where where and how you might take care of critically ill patients that's very different than you do right now. The second concept I want to bring out was highlighted in the the podcast 325, which talked about pediatric triage during a pandemic. The concept of triage is not something that we in, in the modern day in the U.S., most medical professionals don't deal with. We are used to throwing the most resources at the sickest patients. In a way, that's kind of a definition of standard critical care. But in a mass casualty situation, the the focus has to shift from that to doing the most good for the most people. So it has to do with understanding triage-based distribution of resources and care, and also in the concept of crisis standards of care, in which you may not be able to deliver the same level of care that you normally would because you no longer have resources. So... The third thing I think that critical care physicians are going to be particularly important in has to do with palliative care. This is something that you do every day. And there are going to be situations in a mass casualty incident during a disaster, as we saw in Katrina, where decisions about withdrawing care and about providing respectful, dignified kindness to patients as best we can is, is going to be absolutely crucial. This is something where I, I can't think of a, a group of people who are better at this than critical care physicians. And planning for this and delivering this kind of care will be extremely important during
0: disaster. It's a pretty powerful position to be in. I, I totally agree. And I think that's something that all of us um, at the SSCM need to realize. And, and we need to own it, that we are a essential part of the emergency response, and we need to actively participate. And during our conversation, I was thinking about your initial essential event, the uh, Memorial Hospital. It it, it sounds like one really needs to also mentally rehearse being in that stressful situation, because uh, as we all probably have already figured out, it's never easy to make decisions that are logical in times of stress and when one's extremely emotional. So we really do need to practice how to triage these situations before we are actually in that scenario. Do you agree?
1: Absolutely. And I wanted to highlight here that this is a great role for simulation. And I am I'm actively engaged in resident education and in the simulation program we have at Virginia Mason I have started to develop a new simulation to train my residents uh, regarding some of these issues. So for example, um, in the concept of triage, this is very low tech, this is easy, this is something anyone can adapt, but I have a printout, like about 50 different sheets of paper, each paper briefly summarizing a patient coming in, and I give the residents a scenario of what's just happened and say, okay, you're gonna start receiving patients. I need you to assign a color to this patient. And the colors in a triage system are red, which means top, you know, front of the line, immediate medical care, you know, serious injury, but they, they get treated first. Yellow, they're going to need treatment, but they're relatively stable right now. Green, they're not seriously injured. They can wait. And then the final category of black, which is called expectant, as in we expect them to die. That can be a palliative care branch or a we've sort of we're, we're very close to death so you have to practice in that moment because you only have a few seconds making that decision and we i just throw down a piece of paper and the residents throw down a card and we throw down a piece of paper and we throw down the card and when we when the residents are disagreeing on something we talk about why one chose yellow and one chose red or one chose red and one chose black and it gets easier for them to frame that response when they get some practice with it, but it's a very difficult thing for them to do at first because this is, for many of them, the first time they've been asked to think about treating patients in this way. So there are, there are training tools like that that I think allow us to practice that, that very key mental rehearsal before an event happens. And I'm really looking forward to helping develop some more tools like that that I think can be applied throughout the medical
0: system. I would like to say that. I'm looking forward to you developing these tools so that you could really educate you know, all of us in addition to your health staff. That sounds great. Uh, I, I wanted to summarize the different uh, uh, pieces of advice that you had for us. It, it sounds like the first thing that all of us who are interested in this, and really that does need to be all of us, that the first thing that we need to do is we need to figure out what emergency plans currently do exist at the institutions that we work at and figure out our communication process and really get ourselves sorted. So, for example, you were talking about making sure that we know what's going on at home with our loved ones and thinking about ways to help us and our teams act during these situations. Absolutely. Okay, I think those are simple steps and that could actually yield a lot of good. And during our conversation, I was also thinking about my own experiences with this, which thankfully actually have not been that many and I'll knock on some wood somewhere to um, have that continue. But um, I've been on the faculty for both Stanford and UCSF, and I remember when I was uh, the uh, director of critical care at San Francisco General when uh, there was a large airplane crash at San Francisco uh, International Airport, and I was actually sitting at a happy hour in my neighborhood, and I watched the replay of this and I realized oh wow there are going to be some really injured people there but there was our immediately a uh, sense of well I really need to go in because like you pointed out Dr. Porteous we are all trained to want to help but who actually does go in and should I call them they're probably busy and Mm -hmm. I, I I wound up you know going in because I figured either in the OR as an anesthesiologist or in the ICU as an intensivist, I was probably going to be be needed. And I actually, you know, was needed in that situation. And then there Mm -hmm. was another situation of a, um, you know, possible active shooter. And again, you know, that's another situation where immediate communication needs to happen. But does everybody actually know how the communication happens? Mm -hmm. And when I was at Stanford, we had a meeting where we, uh, as the intensive care faculty, talked about how the process is going to be triggered. And somebody told us about where the command center is physically mm-hmm. and about these boards on the wall that are to, are going to open and have a list of action items. And I thought, OK, mm-hmm. I can sort that away in my brain. You know, when, <laughs> when I'm in that situation, I'm going to go there. I'm going to look at what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. They're going to be written there. And I think you know those are simple and easy steps. Mhm. And understand
1: that you can have all the tools in the world, but if you don't know A where they are or B have any practice in using them, you're not likely to be as effective as as if you have played with them and you have practiced with them. So it's really like anything else in medicine. And um, well, in life really. Yeah.
0: Practice and knowledge. I Correct. I completely support that. Well, it has been great, and it's time to wrap it up. So I would like to, again, thank Dr. Porteous for this discussion about a very important topic that I think can only stretch the value of us as uh, intensive care personnel. And this concludes another edition of the iCritical Critical Care podcast. For the iCritical Critical Care podcast team, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin.
2: Bring SCCM's training courses in initial critical care and disaster management to your institution. Ask to speak with the product support specialist for details on the new Fundamental Critical Care Support, 6th edition, Pediatric Fundamental Critical Care Support, and Fundamental Disaster Management courses. Ludwig Len, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lynn did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lynn of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.